0: You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. It's here, it's hot, and it's a must read. It's the science behind the Law of Attraction magazine. Every issue brings you great articles and in-depth how-tos from all your favorite Law of Attraction experts authors scientists and medical professionals go to law of attraction that's law of attraction magazine molecules of a meditation Logic. remote Field. viewing nootropics dream. miracles of mind, super learning the physiology of trauma psi Morphogenic resonance, heart intelligence. Theater of the Mind Podcast, accelerating the evolution of human consciousness. Theater of the Mind Podcast, brought to you by Brainsync.com. CDs and MP3 downloads for peak performance at Brainsync.com. Expand your knowledge of the body mind connection and learn how to tap the other ninety percent of your unused potential.
1: You're on a journey. You're going somewhere. You've never been before and you're beginning to feel like something's going to happen when a strange man a mysterious man appears in your path so you ask him where am i and he turns and he looks at you in a around you. This is the inner world. It's wild terrain. It's a mystery. You may discover oceans of energy, continents of light. Why, you may be a regular Marco Polo. But there are things you need to know when you travel through uncharted territory. You need a map. You need directions. If you want to explore these regions, you have to train for it. This is real training. This is training in the zone. ask yourself, who is this guy, some kind of mystic sports coach? Then he looks at you as if he can read your mind. And he says, if you want to travel here, you've got to work. You work to build the energy so you can ride the spiral. You ride the spiral, so you can eat the light. Then he laughs, and he walks away without any explanation. And you find yourself following him to a crossroad. And he says, To get anywhere here, you have to work with desire. And you breathe in. And you work, and you feel your body burn with desire. Hey everybody, welcome back to Theatre of the Mind, your host, Kelly Howell. We're doing a show on desire today, so I thought I should start with one of my favorite audio programs, Breakthrough Training in the Zone. Yeah, okay, it's a shameless plug, but hey, it couldn't be more perfect. My guest today is Danielle Laporte, author of The Desire Map. Danielle, welcome so much. It's an honor to have you here. I'm really happy we got this all worked out and we're talking.
2: We did it. We're here. Thank you.
1: You know, you're really speaking to my heart with your book, The Desire Map. And I would like to kind of kick off our talk here with the difference between desire, need, and ambition. Because sometimes ambitions can override our purest desires and we can end up uh, caught in something we started and wish we hadn't. And mm-hmm. sometimes fulfilling basic needs can override following our purest desires. So how do you reconcile all these strong innate primal drives that we do have? We have needs, we have ambition, and we have desire. Mhm. Mhm. It's
2: a great question. It's a big question. Um, I I I think that ambition comes into play when our goals are externally motivated or they originate in uh some form of, you know, it's something that's out there. So I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit this goal, it's gonna make me feel a certain way, I'm gonna hit this goal, I'm gonna get approval, and therefore I'm gonna feel this certain way. And it can be really addictive. Part of that addiction is we end up craving bigger and better and more all the time. It's not really Because it's not really rooted internally. And my theory is that everything we're going after, everything, 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 every goal you set, everything you purchase, everything you bring into your home, what you say in a business meeting, where you choose to work, the projects you take on, the people you partner with, is all being driven by a desire to feel a certain way. Like Basically, universally, across the board, everybody just wants to feel good. That's it. We want pleasure. And that's a healthy, that's a healthy thing. Uh, You get a lot of power when you get clear on what feeling good means for you. And you get to feel any way, you get to desire to feel any way you want to feel. And I think once you get clear on that, then the relationship to ambition and goal setting inverts itself and it becomes internally inspired instead of externally motivated. I'm actually not a big fan of motivation. I'm a fan of inspiration. It's very, they're very, very different. They come from very different places. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I can say I'm, I'm, of course, you know, this is my soapbox. So I'm, I'm very clear on how I want to feel. Like I have my core desired feelings that drive all of my decision-making and, all those things I just listed, you know, who I collaborate with, et cetera, et cetera, what I wear, And I'm still a very ambitious person. But the difference for me, I would say, is it like it, it is life changing. I'm really careful about using that phrase. It's it's kicked around way too much. And it's like in the self-help space. But
1: the other one now is uh, game changing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Started doing mantras and it was a real yeah. game changer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's, you got it. I don't need to tell you. You got it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, meditation really rocked my world. Anyway, um, because I'm rooted in how I want to feel, and that's driving my decisions, then I can be ambitious in what I consider to be a healthy way. And that means, to use a really old phrase, like success really is the quality of the journey. So, like, if what I'm doing isn't feeling like if how I'm going after my goals isn't feeling the way I want to feel when I get there, then it's all backwards. It's like, it doesn't work. So let's say, you know, for me, one of my core desired feelings is radiant. Another is beloved. And if I'm chasing the goal of being on the New York times bestseller list, or, you know, really hitting out of the park when, when I'm on stage next, if that journey doesn't feel, doesn't have a sense of, like, radiance, I'm not feeling a beloved connection with the people I'm teaming with, then the answer's got to be no. And it doesn't mean those, those no's are easy, but they're obvious. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point because um, goals have gotten me personally into so much trouble. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can often lead to a lot of unhappiness. You get something going and you start and and then you're into it and you go, why am I doing this? It's not fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So how do you get to the bottom of your core desire and how do you keep yourself in check? Because our minds have a tendency to jump into goal setting. We've been so programmed. It's everywhere. You know, set your goals and, uh, you know, get your life going, etc. Yeah,
2: It's part of um,
1: our society, yeah, it's part of culture, living in, everything.
2: In a materialistic goal, you know, ambition-obsessed society. Um, well, an important distinction to make is there's a difference between your core desire and i would put that in a category of like things you want to have and do and be and like those are goals and it's you got to have them and there's a difference between your core desired feelings and it all starts with the feelings so you know the the process of desire mapping itself is pretty simple you go through every area of your life you ask yourself how you want to feel and you narrow that down now that's like an extremely oversimplified version there's like some more layers and right. many more nuances but yeah
1: your book is great
2: you, you get yeah. to I think, you know, having four or five core desired feelings that you're going to devote yourself to is like enough. Like my brain can't hold more than four core desired feelings because I'm using them every day. And when you get, so so if you just sort of distill it down to that handful.
1: Okay, wait, just back up for a second. So these are your four. Uh, core desire feelings give us some examples they don't have to be yours it could be anybody's but like what would four core desire feelings be and how do you orient your day and your weeks and your years around them
2: yeah this is great the nitty-gritty they can be anything I mean what I I hear the most especially from women is core desired feelings are connection communion uh, vitality energized inspired They can get really creative. I've heard, you know, I want to feel rock and roll. I want to feel badass. I want to feel lit up. Luminosity. There's always, I notice there's a lot of core desired feelings around light, like luminosity, illumined, lighter, enlightened, um, respected. Joyful. Joyful, absolutely. And the only sort of, not disclaimer, like sort of strict guidance I would give to people because really it is about you get to feel any way you want to feel is beware of core desired feelings that require other people to help you feel that way. So words like, I want to feel adored. I want to feel, um, I want to feel accepted. I want to feel honored. Okay. Those are cool. Let's just, let's just make sure Mm -hmm. that you are Mm -hmm. adoring yourself and honoring yourself and accepting yourself that you're not, you know, you're not setting that core desired feeling because that's how you want your boss or your partner to make you feel right. Um, and also Mm -hmm. I advise people again, it's an art, not a science, but I advise people to stay away from the word success. Um, because success is actually a feeling. And part of the problem with our addiction to goal setting, empty goal setting, soulless goal setting, is that we've, we've, lost, that, we've lost that connection between uh, what success looks like and what success actually feels like. So, mm,
1: mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. to answer this, you've you mm-hmm. kind of you strip it down. You you kind of strip these core desires down. It's like bare bones. It's not like an affirmation. I want to feel etc. Whatever joyful, excited, uh, whatever. You're you're talking one word.
2: Yes, yes, yes. This is a, It's it's a mini mantra. It's a, it's an, it's like it's. You know, it's a coordinate on your compass. And yeah, the pure,
1: the deeper. Because people can get very complicated, you know, with how they want to feel. It can be a complicated affirmation.
2: Yeah, and I I think some of that complication can happen because we're grasping. There's a relationship there. You know, we're Mm -hmm. we're trying to cram it all into one mantra. We're trying to cover all the bases of our whole life with one prayer and really it, it it's it's much deeper actually you know the proper word is it's much more pure and yeah pure
1: desire yeah 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 so um so you start from the inside you get down to the bare bone pure desire feeling of one soul basically
2: yeah, yeah. Right? and then to, to answer the second part of your question, like how does this actually work for your day? I every day write down my core desired feelings. They're they're in my day planner. I actually have there's a I have a whole day planner system which I designed because yeah, I, I love that. them. It's one of my favorite things I've ever done. Um, because I couldn't find a day planner that took my my soul into consideration. Like there was just nothing out there that was really inspiring. It's just like one big kind of grocery list and agenda. So anyway, every day or every week you write down your core desired feelings and it does, it becomes second nature, but I actually commit to doing something that's going to make me feel the way I want to feel that day or that week. So what's going to make me feel radiant. I'm going to make sure I do my mantras in the morning. What's going to make me feel that, that belovedness, that connection. I'm going to call a friend I'm gonna order some groceries for somebody who's going through chemotherapy. I'm just gonna be a loving being, uh, and it's that simple. And then in terms of goal setting, like I'm down with goals. They, they, my goals. Some of them still get me into trouble, and I think, you know, I'm gonna just forget this altogether. But
1: I, yeah, uh, I, I have a mantra. I have no goals. You do. <laughs> I don't like Tell goals. Yeah, I love this. I think goals are well. I I really do think it's more like you said in the very beginning. It's more externally oriented. It's grasping outwardly rather than reaching inwardly. So the goals emerge naturally, which is why I love your work. Goals emerge naturally, kind of organically from pure desire. So it's not like you have to write down your goal. If, you, if you're following your pure desire, mm-hmm. the goal will emerge or the people or the whatever situation or circumstances to fulfill, you know, that state of being that you crave, because it is all about your state of being. It's not about the
2: goal. And I'm with you. And there's certain things that we will want to pull off and accomplish because it's part of how we want to feel and as part of being of service it's like you know i can say um i'm really clear i i live a life of service i want to help as many people as possible feel the comfort of being closer to who they are of just getting in touch with the light so if i want to do that i want to sell as many books as possible I want to get to as many people as possible. If I want to sell as many books as possible, I should try and get on the New York Times list. Um, but if I go back to how I want to feel, then I'm not as attached to the goals, so I still have them. But I'm, you know, how what, how, what I distill it down to is I'm, I'm still fierce, but I'm flexible. So mm. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm deeply committed to what I want to do. And I'm much more flexible about how it, how everything shows up. And, and there's less, um, well, there's no self punishment now if I don't, if I don't hit my target, so to speak. Right. Okay. So what do you say to people
1: that don't have any big desires? It's just
2: like, there's always more, there's always a creative edge to be on. You can always, you know, purify more thoughts. You can always be of greater service. You can always be more loving. And if you think you can't be, then you're going to atrophy. Absolutely. I think it's, it's 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 like a slow death. Mm-hmm. So I think aspiration is a healthy thing. I've had many conversations about desire with, you know, let's just say generally ordained people, and you know, even the 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 hardcore Buddhists that I talk to, I say, okay, you know, you know, Buddhism is all about detachment, unattachment. Um, but you still have to be desiring to be detached. You still have to be desiring enlightenment. So you know, talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the idea is really like, yes, there will always, there will always be desire. The difference, the trick is how you go about um, getting, moving towards what you want. And that's where fierce but flexible comes in.
1: You have a section in your book uh, that says um, affirmations can mess you up. Can you speak to that? I'd like you to just sort of elaborate on that.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I am not a fan of affirmations. I think they've done us, uh, they can do us a great disservice. I think if we're not really clear about them, uh, We're just lying to ourselves, which isn't forward progress at all. Uh, It's like this. Imagine, uh, I think of of a metaphor, imagine that you want to have a lot more money than you do right now. Now affirmations will tell you, you should speak from the future tense and declare it as if it's done. So let's say, you, you know, you're broke and you're standing there and you're looking in the mirror giving yourself this affirmation that's saying, I am so happy to be so wealthy. I'm so happy that I made my first million dollars. Well, I think what's going on in the sort of the undercurrent in your subconscious, you know, you're lying to yourself. And when you're lying to yourself, I mean, that just messes with your synapses. That's just like not good. That like puts a kink in your energy system. And so I want to do everything I can do to be truthful with myself, not lie to myself, and be into my desire. So I much prefer what I would call declarations. So, you know, using that same example, I would say to myself, um, with every cell of my being, I am desiring to make my first million dollars or my first 30 grand or whatever it is. And, and, I, and I allow that to happen and, you know, my job, really, my my esoteric job is to believe that I'm deserving of that and to allow for that. It's not to lie to myself that it's already here. Yeah. So that's yeah. how I feel about affirmations. So, okay, yeah.
1: so I kind of took you off track a little bit, but you were talking about how you, which I really liked what you were saying about how you incorporate using your book. So every day, what do you do?
2: I ask myself what I'm going to do that day to feel the way I want to feel, and you know. So that's if I want to be, if I want to feel loving, what I'm going, to, what am I going to do to to, to be loving? Um, when it comes to, so I, I I covered the daily and the weekly. When it comes to the actual goal setting, I'm I'm still down with the goals. I still have ambitions. Personally, I refresh my goals two or three times a year. So I I love there's there's nothing like a new year's goal setting sessions. I still love that. I still look at my goals around my birthday, which for me is in May, and I always review things in September. I really think September is the new January. And I think there's always goals that are floating around that are like career based. I want to do this. I want to I want to hit this out of the park. I want to land this this relation, this professional relationship, whatever it is. Um, and then I have to ask myself if I get that, if I pull that off, is that going to make me feel the way I want to feel? And sometimes the answer is no. I'm just like, Oh, I did it again. That was like such an ego driven goal. I don't need to be on the cover of that magazine or I don't need to make this amount of money in order to feel radiant and beloved and connected or whatever my core desired feelings are for that, you know, that month or whatever. Um, and, you know, and I, so I finesse from there. So what would make me feel radiant? And sometimes what, what would make me feel the way I want to feel is completely and entirely aligned with the goals that have been swirling around with the obvious goals of, you know, personal life and my professional life. So that's how I that's how I do it. That's
1: great. Yeah, I think the way you speak about goals is different than a lot of people have been, you know, trained to think about goals where you're kind of mm-hmm. f- forcing yourself like I need to lose 15 pounds by X <laughs> or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's more ego-driven than heart-driven.
2: Yeah, and we when you're in that place, when you're in that do whatever it takes place, um you will for sure fry out your adrenals. Uh it will put a strain on your relationships and basically you're not going to be feeling good, which is the whole point. You're going to be miserable on the way to your goal and you may you may achieve what you set out to achieve. You'll have an empty tank when you get there and almost guaranteed you're going to be like this is it? Or
1: this wasn't fun? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, this, this wasn't fun, will be obvious. Yeah. But when, you're, when you got the brass ring, you'll just be like,
1: huh?
2: Huh? Yeah. Not that fulfilled. Right. Mm,
1: yeah. 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 I like what you have desire meets action. And you recommend choosing only three or four major intentions for the year. Like you have with your core desires. It's like, what? Keep it down to four?
2: Yeah, three. i say three to five. When mm-hmm. it comes to actual goal setting or intention setting, choose, choose the word that works for you. I think, you know, time is moving more quickly. There is a quickening. Absolutely. And if you can pull off one awesome thing a year, then you're awesome. Yep. If you can pull off two major accomplishments this year, then wow, you're like superhuman. Uh, three, wow. Like, you know, so just... Accomplish one thing and then you can move on. Just have one big goal and there'll be so many other, to use a business term, there's so many milestones and things you have to accomplish to get to the big accomplishment. And yeah, for me, it's that has been my biggest and my most difficult learning curve. Focus is difficult. Focus, I mean, we hear a lot of talk about this just sort of in the creative business community about the power of focus. But often what's not discussed is how difficult and painful focus is because we've all got lots of ideas. There's always other opportunities. Um, It's very, very difficult to say no because so many of us, especially women, we want to make everybody happy. Um, There is the disease to please. But, you know, my, personally, my success is really because I say no to 80% of what comes my way, probably more, probably more like 90, let's say 93% of what comes my way. I'm a no thank you so that I can focus on what matters most. And I still go through those moments of like, I'm not going to be liked for saying no. They're going to think I've gotten like too 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 big for my britches or, or I'm being unkind or inconsiderate. Um, but I know that's not, I, I mean, I know who I am, and that focus on a daily basis and then just having, you know, really just two two goals, <laughs> really, most of the time, it's, it's really my formula for um, A, sanity, and B, really significant achievement.
1: Well, Danielle, I've really enjoyed our talk. And uh, is there anything you'd like to share or leave us
2: with? I'm very easy to find. It's daniellelaporte.com. I'm everywhere on social media. There's, there's stuff coming out every week. And uh, yeah, my prayer is that people see the light within themselves and then that they take that out and help other people to shine.
1: Once again, we've been speaking with Danielle Laporte, author of The Desire Map. Check out her website at DanielleLaporte.com. And if you were inspired by the concept of exploring the deeper nature of your desires, get her book, The Desire Map. And even I have an audio program called Fulfill Your Heart's Desire. That program is designed to help you embody the fulfillment of what you want so that it manifests in your life all my audios are now available through the in-app shop in my app Meditate Me with Kelly Howell hey everybody thanks so much for listening until next time, be well he says time's up no more free lattes Life is endless, but time is short. He says, remember that crossroad? There's no turning back now. This ride's almost over, but the journey has just begun.
0: Listening to Theater of the Mind podcast, accelerating the evolution of human consciousness. Visit Theater of the Mind online at www.kellyhowell.com. Leave comments, questions, and feedback and join the conversation about consciousness. We want to know what you're thinking. Theater of the Mind podcast is brought to you by Brainsync.com. CDs and MP3 downloads for peak performance. Find them at www.brainsync.com. You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. Molecules of a Meditation. Remote viewing. Nootropics. Dream, miracles of mind. Super learning. The physiology of trauma. PSI. Morphogenic Resonance, Heart Intelligence, Theater of the Mind Podcast, Accelerating the Evolution of Human Consciousness, Theater of the Mind Podcast, brought to you by Brainsync.com. CDs and MP3 downloads for peak performance at Brainsync.com. Expand your knowledge of the body-mind connection and learn how to tap the other 90% of your unused potential.
1: Hello and welcome once again to Theater of the Mind, your host, Kelly Howell. My guest today is Bill O'Hanlon. He's a psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, speaker, and author of 35 books, one of which, titled Do One Thing Different, landed him on Oprah. Bill studied directly with the foremost hypnotherapist of the 20th century, psychiatrist Milton Erickson. He was Dr. Erickson's only work-study student lucky guy. I don't know how that happened, but uh, we'll find out. Bill is a lifetime fellow of the Association for NLP. He's a fellow and master therapist in the American Psychotherapy Association, and he's certified by the National Board of Certified Clinical Hypnotherapists. Bill, welcome.
3: Well, thank you. Good to talk to you again.
1: So you've got to tell me, how did you meet Dr. Erickson
3: well, it was partly because I was a poor student and had no money. I was poor as a church mouse, and I wanted to study with Dr. Erickson, but I had no money to pay him, and we made a deal that I would work for him. So I met him when I was an undergraduate student at Arizona State University. He lived in, the, in Phoenix, and that university is right outside of Phoenix. It's in Tempe, Arizona. And he came to the art gallery where I was a work-study student uh, when I was an undergraduate uh, in, in undergraduate school studying psychology. And one of my fellow students, after he left said, do you know who that person was? And I said, no. She said, he's a famous psychiatrist. You're in psychology. I can't believe you don't know who he is. And there was an article that week in Newsweek magazine called "Svengali in Arizona about this weird, uncommonly you know, creative therapist who was out in the Arizona desert doing this interesting therapy stuff. And i never heard of him. None of my professors had ever mentioned him. And I sought him out And I wrote him a letter. I was too shy to call him, but I wrote him a letter saying, I don't have any money, but I'd really like to study with you. And he called me up invited me out, and I became his gardener. I had worked as a gardener between undergraduate and graduate school. By the time I got to study with him, I was in graduate school studying to be a therapist, and he said he needed some gardening work, and I could do that in exchange for his learning. Oh, lucky you. It was very serendipitous. He's a
1: mythic figure. I mean, my God. What was he like? How old was he when you worked for him?
3: He was in his, uh, he died at the age of 70. And he was, so he was in his 60s. And he was pretty infirm. He was in a wheelchair by the time I knew him. He'd had polio when he was younger. And he'd overcome the paralysis of polio, which was part of his weird story. He taught himself to walk visually. So that's all I can say. He didn't have any peripheral, you know, he didn't have any of that proprioception that people get because his, you know, his his body had been damaged by the polio and he watched his body and he was able to get it to move by using unconscious and imaginative techniques and he rehabilitated himself so that he could walk with crutches and then he then finally walked pretty well. He had a little limp and he walked pretty well. So, um he, he was in a wheelchair, though, again, by the time I knew him in, in his 60s, and he was deteriorating physically. He had a lot of pain. And um, so it was just a special time to be there with him. He was an amazing fellow, endlessly creative, and told stories and... Did hypnosis in the weirdest way. Yes, and, tell
1: us a little bit about that.
3: Well, I didn't. I, you know, as I was, he would come out. He would have me wheel him out to the garden. He would, I would work and under his direction, and he would be telling me stories. And I was like, "Is he just telling me stories? Is he seeing?" Oh, he he's just hi- gone He over was the hypnotizing heads. you. <laughs> or is he doing hypnosis right. because time just seemed to disappear and fly when he was talking to me and I didn't know enough about hypnosis at the time. And also I think my image of hypnosis was that sort of Svengali like, you will go into trance. And he didn't do any of that. So I thought, is this hypnosis? You know, is he doing? Am I in tr-? I just wasn't sure. And I would leave there and change, is all I can say. Yeah. Things would just change for me. And then he finally, his his sweet wife came out and said, Milton, the boy doesn't just want to you know do gardening. He came here to learn from you. Let's let him sit in on sessions. And I was you know, <laughs> wordlessly thanking her because I was too shy to speak up. So and you got to sit I, in, huh? I got to sit in on sessions and watch him do what he did. And I also saw that same thing. Then I realized he was doing hypnosis and he was using therapeutic storytelling because he would tell sometimes 20 stories in a row and just look at the ground. And I was trained as a therapist. You were supposed to kind of ask a question, get a response, and then validate and empathize with that person and ask them another question. Erickson asked a few questions and then he just went. He just started talking, doing a hypnotic therapy that included a lot of storytelling. So it was quite a an awakening for me about what the possibilities were. And I would watch those patients. He called them patients. I call them clients because he was a medical person. And I would watch them come back the next week and they would be entirely different. Their problems dissolved. And I was like, I guess stories have a lot of power. And I guess the unconscious has a lot of power, which wasn't emphasized in my training. The only power of the unconscious was to mess you up. I didn't know it was possible to heal yourself through the unconscious. So that was an awakening for me.
1: Can you explain the um the methodology here of how a story would access the unconscious?
3: Well, I think the first thing I need to start with is, you know, again, I was trained as uh, in psychology and Freud was the big influence there and he basically had this I think sort of a negative view of the unconscious. The unconscious was that place where the scary things lurked. It was all the primal urges in the id and, you know, you wanted to rape and pillage and, you know, (laughs) do all sorts of unrestrained things in that deep uh, unconscious sort of the... Mr. Hyde, the Dr. Chekhov, Mr. Hyde kind of thing. And Erickson had a different view of the unconscious. He had a view, and I think you share this because you and I have spoken before, of a more benevolent sense of the unconscious. If you can learn to work with your unconscious, it can be a tool for great change and it can be a resource and a warehouse of learning. So, how human beings store their experience a lot is stories you know i ask you how did you start brain sync and theater of the mind and you tell me a story and so human beings think in stories a lot and i and erickson found a way to use stories to evoke those resources because they weren't random stories he would he would use stories that were very pointed and the person would go back and to, into their lives, and somehow instead of instructing them or even correcting them with educational stuff, which is one way to help people change, um, he would just evoke it. And I think that was the biggest shift that I had, both with the kind of hypnosis he did and the storytelling added. I learned a therapy that you were supposed to kind of input new material into people, you know, new ideas, new beliefs, you know, that kind of stuff. And Erickson had a more of an inside-out approach to change. He would evoke resources and beliefs and ideas and strengths and capabilities and abilities that were already there. And again, big shift for me because I had learned that people were messed up. And Erickson had a more benevolent and holistic and healthy view of human beings they were they were naturally healthy if we could evoke their natural strengths and abilities and
1: And seeking health yes absolutely
3: that was a revolution for me and you know actually i think medicine has come more around to that point of view even therapy has come more around to that point of view instead of focusing entirely on what's wrong with people and how they got sick or messed up or disturbed We're focusing on, you know, encouraging health, accessing health, prevention, a lot more on the positive side of things. There's this whole positive psychology movement that's come, and Erickson was an early forerunner of that.
1: Mm, mm -hmm. Now, you wrote a book on hypnosis. I've
3: written a few. Yeah, yeah. a few. Tell us. (laughs) Well, um, you know, here's the thing about Erickson. He was like a Zen master in his teaching. He just wouldn't explain anything. He would just demonstrate it. You're and supposed you to figure it out. Right? Yeah, and, and that was frustrating for me because I'm kind of a cognitive guy. I like to know what I know. I don't want to just experience it. I want to figure it out so I can tell it to other people. So after he, he died in 1980, I studied with him in the 70s. He died in 1980, and for the next five years, I was a bit obsessive in trying to figure out what the heck was this confusing you know, sort of Zen master like guy doing. And I wrote my first book. My first book came out that was explaining in a more systematic way what Erickson did. That book was called Taproots, And that examined his therapy and hypnosis. And then I went on later to write three other books about his work. And um, one was called An Uncom- Uncommon Casebook. And that was all of Erickson's published cases that I analyzed in a sort of a reference book. And then I wrote two that were more for everybody to read. And that was A Guide to Transland and solution oriented hypnosis. And I came to call my variation. Or my version of what he did, solution oriented hypnosis. And because it's different from traditional hypnosis, it doesn't go for what causes the problem or the deep unconscious traumas or blocks. It goes for something else. That's sort of what we referred to.
1: So, what is the difference?
3: The (laughs) difference is it's this hypnosis. You know, a lot of hypnosis goes back to the past to try and find the deeply suppressed and repressed traumatic memories that messed you up in the first place. I, you know, I had, a, I had a friend who was a traditional hypnotist, and he would take people back before the age of five and have them do finger signals. When did the trauma occur that's related to your problem? You know, was it before you were five? And then a, a, the yes finger would come up, mm. or it was after you were five and before you were seven. little hokey, the, you know, right? Finger, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean a little, but, but the point is, he was pointed towards what caused the problem and Erickson just didn't do that and I was warped by Erickson I started to focus on what are the solutions so traditional therapy is focused a lot on the past and what causes problems traditional hypnosis is also hypnoanalysis and you know traditional hypnosis I started to focus having learned this from Erickson on the present towards the future and on evoking resources that could solve the problem rather than figuring out what caused the problem. So I started calling it solution-oriented hypnosis because it was more interested in solutions than causes and problems. So that was my variation on his approach, I guess, and my explication of his approach.
1: Have you been using this technique, your approach, for a long time?
3: Yeah, thirty some years. I studied with them <laughs> in the seventies. That carbon dates me, I guess. But uh...
1: do you think it's helped you write so many books and be such a you know productive human being?
3: I. Yes, in some way. Number one, I got more solution oriented rather than why can't I write a book? I thought, well, the way to write a book is to write a book. So let's start to work on the solution part rather than why I'm not writing. So that was one thing. But I think the other thing, and I, you know, again, you and I have had some discussions and I'm well aware of your work and your company. And it's learning to work with yourself and cooperate with yourself and align yourself with your deepest and highest intentions. And I think. I learned that so much from Erickson. Sort of a deep self-acceptance, even of all that stuff that is not under my conscious control, and that's hard for some people to give up that kind of control. So, you know, when I'm going to write a book, I give it to my unconscious. I I have an intention, positive, you know, conscious intention to write this book about this subject, and then I just let it go and let my little elves in the workshop on the underground level build that. Or that book for me, do the outline, figure out what examples I should use, and it sort of comes delivered fully formed in a certain way especially the structure of the book and so I've learned to work with myself and I didn't know anything about doing that before I met Dr. Erickson and before I used a lot of hypnosis and I've spent a lot of time in trance Um, in fact sometimes I have to bring myself out of trance in everyday life because I like to spend time there I enjoy the kind of altered state of consciousness uh, you know and again being an old hippie I guess that's that's not surprising either.
1: And you've taught a lot of people how to write books.
3: I have. I've I've coached over 200 into publication, and I put that stuff online a few years ago because I just wanted to get to as many people as possible to get their books out in the world.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing what you're doing. Are you incorporating uh, hypnosis?
3: Yes, a bit. Obviously, Uh some of the skills and, and that I have in the course. Because people, you know, when they get the call to write a book or do anything big, really, anything that puts them out in the world, makes them visible, the next thing that happens is they often freak out. So I have a trance to kind of calm them down and get them to trust themselves and get them to align their intentions and all that stuff that is part of the course. And uh, people say they find it helpful. So that's good.
1: You have a solution-oriented hypnosis training coming up pretty soon, right? I do, you know, I traveled around
3: I traveled around the world for thirty some years, three or four times a month. I went to, you know, I uh, introduced hypnosis to or this kind of hypnosis to Finland. I was the first one to teach there, and I've been all over the world in China and Australia and all that. And I I hit a million miles on Delta and United the same month two years ago, and I thought that's too much traveling. I want to stay home. And you and I both live in a beautiful place, Santa Fe, and uh, I love being here. And I thought. You know, Wayne Gretzky said years ago, might as well, you know, the way to win at hockey is to skate where the puck is going to be. And I could see the whole world was going online and into apps. And I thought, I'm going to put my work online and maybe I won't have to travel so much. And I can get to people all over the world. It's more affordable, they don't have to travel or stay in a hotel. And um, I really want to get to people. And the two courses I do per year are one on book writing, as you said, and getting published, and another one on this solution oriented hypnosis stuff, which I'm totally passionate about it's fun
1: so tell us about the course i want to hear about it
3: well i you know it's funny because i taught for years and so i knew the material really well but when you do an online when you do a live course it comes out as it does and sometimes i do a great job and sometimes i think i leave and i think oh, i forgot to say that oh i should have told that story well an online course you get a chance to think about it revise it And so I have audios, videos, worksheets, and then we have an online community to support one another. And people are getting on Skype all over the world and practicing with each other through the course because that was. Oh, great.
1: You put people together. Absolutely. That
3: was my only dilemma. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't, you know, I can demonstrate on video, but I can't get people to practice this. And unless they have somebody to practice with in their everyday life, which some people do, or they have a practice that they can start it, I said, let's just do it on Skype. And people are Skyping from, like, Japan to Australia and practicing with one another, or from New York to California. So that's nice. And then I have a bunch of phone calls where I answer questions and do supervision. And every once in a while we get on a Skype-like thing and I hypnotize somebody who's in the course to demonstrate how to do it. So...
1: Now, are you teaching people to work on themselves or other people?
3: Yes, both, but mostly how to work with other people. So it's really for professionals who want to work with other people. But I've had people go through the course that just say, I just want to learn about this because I'm fascinated with the approach and I'm going to apply it to myself. So I have some stuff on self-hypnosis in the course. And the whole course, I think, you know, as I was transformed when I studied with Erickson. I think learning this approach gets you to trust yourself at the deepest levels in uh, a different way than you ever have, perhaps.
1: Do you teach people to weave or use stories to get into trance.
3: I do. And it's a, it's a big part of this approach. I mean, I, I wasn't a natural storyteller when I went to study with Erickson. I grew up in a family with a couple of storytellers. My dad and one of my brothers were great storytellers, but I just wasn't. I couldn't tell a joke to save my life, and I didn't to tell stories. I was kind of shy, and so that was part of it. But I just didn't know how to tell stories. And after I studied with Dr. Erickson, I got so enamored. I mean, I love hearing stories, but I got so enamored with learning to tell them, I just put my entire intentions on it. And I discovered the structure of how to tell therapeutic stories, how to tell a great story, a compelling one, but also therapeutic stories. And I use this when I do inductions. I say a few words of kind of permissive start, you know, you can just be where you are, let yourself feel what you feel and think what you think and there's no, no right way or wrong way to do this and then I go right into a story and it's usually derived from some conversation we've had right before we do the hypnosis, you know, whether I have with a person that's coming for help and I found that to be really, really effective. People just go right into trance with stories and it's sort of we're trained from childhood when some someone says, let me tell you a story, we open our ears, we we get ready to listen, we're in that receptive mode. So I think it puts people in, and a good storyteller is entrancing in any case, you know, somebody who tells stories, time just seems to fly by. So I think it's a natural combination to use storytelling with trance induction, but also then with trance treatment where you're helping people make changes And they're very specific stories that are designed to evoke specific abilities that help people solve problems.
1: What I find really interesting is the connection between metaphor and the unconscious, which is kind of where these stories take. The stories sort of are a way to step into the unconscious, and we automatically make associations.
3: Well, and people come back afterwards, and they tell me an entirely different version of the story than I told them. And I'm like, okay, that's See? fine with me. That's your story now. You've incorporated and you personalize it, and you brought from it what you need to bring from that story. It's evoked in you what it needed to evoke. I don't need to correct your version of the story. And that's the nice part about stories. We remember them in very specific ways, and that's significant how we remember them.
1: How long is the course? How many hours is involved? And
3: well, it's... It's, it's an it's,
1: extensive training.
3: It is an extensive training. It goes over three months, and it's it, it drips out over six weeks so people don't get overwhelmed. But I try and make each lesson five or ten minutes long so you can do it in the midst of a busy life with audios and videos. And then there's some worksheets and practice exercises. And then, as I say, there's some phone calls. So I don't know. It's probably 25, 30 hours total if you want to put in the practice. And doing the worksheets, things like that. So it's it's a nice course. It, it's it's like going to a three day workshop, which is what I sort of modeled it on. I would used to do three day live workshops, and it has all that material packed in there in the most coherent way. That, so I don't leave anything out, and all the great stories are in there.
1: And people get certified.
3: They get a certificate at the end of it. There are several certifying bodies in the united states and they sort of fight with one another like who's really right and so i decided not to get into that and i give you a certificate for completing that course at the end and how many hours you put in and then you can go to one of those organizations and say i've got this much training from this guy and is that you know legitimate in terms of helping me get the certification through your organization and some people do hypnosis with no certifications, so
1: What can a person expect from taking your course? What will they learn?
3: They will go from, you know, some people take it, they've already done hypnosis and they just want to get more confident and more competent at it. But some people are wary of it or I've never done it and I don't know anything about it. And I take them from zero to 60 during this course. They will, by the time they leave, if they consume all the materials and practice it, they will know how to do hypnosis and induce a trance in someone else.
1: Well, that's great.
3: And how to make changes which is another important thing, not just inducer trance, but how to make therapeutic changes, you know. And you can use it for pain control or, you know, uh, migraine headaches, the kind of physical things. You can use it for emotional and and psychological things. So, you know, depression and anxiety and other things that people are troubled with.
1: What are some other applications for solution-oriented hypnosis
3: well, I've used it a lot with trauma and resolving trauma, and I've used it a lot with somatic problems. You know, again, some of those things that the person's gone to the end, what they can do with medicine, and traditional medicine just hasn't worked, or even alternative medicine hasn't worked, because, again, this is something I know you and I agree on. The, if you can harness the power of your unconscious to work with your body and your immune system, you can create vibrant health and solve long-standing health problems and stress problems and stress-related problems in a way that you don't have to constantly work at it day by day. You can let the deeper parts of you and the higher parts of you resolve and work on this when you're asleep and when you're going about your daily life. And that's the cool part about hypnosis. I like that. You don't have to work at it so much. Something within you is working on it while you are... Going about your
1: life. I love your uh, your metaphor about the little elves working on your book. <laughs> in the workshop, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what's so beautiful about hypnosis. Yes. Bill, what's your website? How can people find out more about what you're up to and your books?
3: Well, the main website, because I do several things, you know, I'm a psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, couples therapist, and then I teach people to write and all that stuff, and even some internet marketing. You and I have talked about that. Uh, That is BillOhanlon.com, and that's B I L L O H A N L O N. -N 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 Dot com, And then I have getyourbookwritten.com, which is people can get a free uh, starter kit to get started on their book and find out whether is this is the time to write it. And then I have the newhypnosis.com, where they can get a free uh, giveaway about hypnosis, this kind of hypnosis that I do. And I have a provocative report that they can get there for free, and it's called Why Hypnosis Has Nothing to Do with Suggestion and What It's Really All About. Because a lot of people think hypnosis is all about suggestion. I have a different idea.
1: When is your course starting?
3: Well, I do it once a year and usually in May of every year. And so if you're listening to this in 2016, it'll be happening in mid-May. And so um,
1: we'll keep people updated. We'll
3: put a and we'll put a create a link that's specifically for uh, brain sync people and theater of the mind people.
1: Okay, great. Bill, thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Thank you for having me. It's always a delight to talk to you.
1: Once again, Bill's website is BillOhanlon.com. Coming up next on Theater of the Mind, we have Susan Shumsky talking about how to awaken the third eye. It should be an enlightening show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well.
0: You have been listening to Theater of the Mind podcast, accelerating the evolution of human consciousness. Visit Theater of the Mind online at www.kellyhowell.com. Leave comments, questions, and feedback and join the conversation about consciousness. We want to know what you're thinking. Theater of the Mind podcast is brought to you by Brainsync.com. CDs and MP3 downloads for peak performance. Find them at www.brainsync.com.